0: back to the Full Dusty Jacket Podcast, a literary conversation for gentlemen. My name is Sam, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, the man who puts gentlemen in gentlemen's literature. Sean, how are you doing today? Why, thank you
1: very much, sir. I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Now you just sound like a,
0: a southerner, like you sound like a southern aristocrat who reads Hustler.
1: Well, now I am drinking a, a mint julep, but don't judge me on that. Question, what is a mint julep? Do you actually know what's in a mint julep? I think it has mint in it and whatever a julep is. And julep. and
0: Is it gin? (laughs) Actually, is it gin?
1: Is it like mint and gin? Is julep a thing with like junipers or some shit? I think it is gin based, you know, uh, like gin and sugar probably. It's like, I think it's like similar to like a slow gin fizz, but you don't (laughs) melt the sugar in the water.
0: Either way, it's something you can only drink when slaves
1: are doing your work. Yeah, you have to have a a refreshing beverage when you're oppressing a minority.
0: The reason I've never drank a mint julep is because I never had the time uh, or I could drink one because it's just not you just need slaves. You clearly have to have <laughs> slaves in order to drink men's well, And uh, speaking speaking of slaves, um I think that's a good that's a good segue into our novel. It's going to be a fun conversation about slavery. No, it's not. All right. So, the book we're doing today was my choice and I got to admit I'm super excited about this one um because this is one of my favorite books ever. It's Burr by Gore Vidal, and you know, it's really funny for a book that has an incredibly, like, Byzantine, uh, complex plot. It's pretty easy to describe, which is basically, um... Sort of, I don't know how you would call him. Uh, long, long, like, like forgotten founding founding father, controversial founding father, uh, misinterpreted founding founding father. Although I guess I, I guess today because of the Hamilton musical, he's a bit more well known. But basically, mm-hmm. the book is about uh, about Aaron Burr's life, and there are some, you know, uh, conventions. That Gore Vidal puts in the book to make it a narrative because it's not a straightforward narrative about Aaron Burr's life. In fact, Vidal uh, invents a main character named uh, Charlie Schuyler. I call him Schuyler because in the book he mentions he's not related to the other wealthy New York Schuylers, which is, by the way, the family that Alexander Hamilton married into. Oh, wait. I, anyways, I, I, I looked up? at it
1: as Schuller. As
0: yeah, that's how I originally read it, but then when I learned about the Skylers from uh. that stupid musical Hamilton, I realized that his name must be Skylar because he makes the point of saying he's not one of them.
1: Yeah, I, I the way I looked at it, I was like I was like that's called Schuler and he's Dutch. Right, so, so it, it, may, but, it would sound but I weird. Think it's suppo-
0: I think it's supposed to be pronounced Schuyler. But the point is this. So he invents this character, this young man in his in his mid-20s named Charlie Schuyler. And Charlie Schuyler is an aspiring novelist, basically, but sometimes, like, journalist. And he's been hired by this highly partisan newspaper in the uh, first election of Martin Van Buren. So Martin Van Buren is running for president. And this this newspaper, which is basically a Whig newspaper— um, Right, they're Whigs, right? I mean, I don't know what the, you would technically what the political party at the time was, but it's the opposing party, the Democrats, that uh, that Martin Van Buren was a part of. This newspaper hires Charlie Schuyler to interview Aaron Burr of all people, and by this point, Aaron Burr is like a long lost, like faded out public figure but he's also a highly controversial one and and considered like evil and somewhat despised in like many important circles and the reason is that Charlie Schuyler has sort of like a tertiary relationship to Aaron Burr like Aaron Burr used to frequent the like the pub that his mom his mother and father owned and what they're trying to do this newspaper is they want uh Schuyler to tell Burr that he's writing a like like a like a you know an exposé on his life but really what he's doing is he's trying to find out, he's trying to get Burr to slip up and admit that, uh, that Martin Van Buren is Burr's illegitimate son. Because if he can figure that out, if he can get Burr to admit that, then that will tank uh, Martin Van Buren's election prospects. And even though like that's the core plot of the book, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, what the book is really about is uh, shitting on everyone you learned about in elementary school in American history.
1: Well, yeah, I think we should go like take a a quick step back and explain okay. how the story is written because okay. each chapter is basically one part of what Charlie's doing in the in the present in the setting and the second part is Burr's memoirs. So as the plot of Charlie moves forward, you also get Burr's memoirs as they move forward. So it's a very interesting setup for a novel. I don't think I've ever seen something written this way where it's kind of like two books at once. Like they're kind of like glued together Yeah, I mean,
0: the the reason he does that, though, is because, let's say Charlie Schuyler wasn't in this book, and it was just a book about Aaron Burr writing his own memoirs, okay? The problem with that would be is that the book is trying to tell the history of America from the Revolutionary War all the way up until the election of Martin Van Buren, and the reason it has to do it this way is that if half the book is Aaron Burr writing his memoirs, and then the other half of the book is like Aaron Burr being like, and now I went to go get groceries in 18, like whatever the year Marman Bureau was elected. It wouldn't be interesting. You know what I mean? And also they yeah, would have like no. they would it, have it, present tense and past tense and they would have all sorts of issues because if his memoirs were were in the first person, then he couldn't also tell the story of the present day in the first person unless he was like, and this is my other memoir about today's times. Like it wouldn't make any sense.
1: No, it's it's a very, very clever way of telling the story because you know Burr is giving his story in his own words and with uh, Charlie's plot you actually get to see the man you know even though he's aged he's still the same person but now it's you can judge him from a different perspective on what he's doing like his actions as opposed to you're you're right if if Burr was just like oh well this it was just all Burr centric then it might be a bit duller because with the Charlie stuff, you get also the additional what's happening in the world at the time kind of bonus features, which I thought was very intriguing. When you suggested this book, I had no idea what I was getting into because awesome. I never read any Vidal before. and He's
0: the fucking man.
1: And I didn't I – did, like, I honestly, when I started reading it, I was – I got so excited because slowly for me, I was like, oh, wait, this isn't like a normal historical fiction. This is like a a detective work as Charlie's going around and, you know, trying to find sources of people that knew Burr back at the time he could have, you know, conceived Van Buren. And he's meeting like, he's meeting famous people like he meets, uh, was it Nathaniel Hawthorne?
0: He meets a bunch of famous people in the present day, which at that time is, you know, the, the, the end of the, last, the second term of Andrew Jackson. Like he also gets caught up in what I think is like some like famous murder case of that period. Like some sort of like Jack the Ripper style thing, which I have no idea what it is, but it mu- I have a feeling it must have happened. Like, no, like, it, you, it you did sort- happen. It did happen, right? So yeah. like he he almost writes like a, a a Jack the Ripper like like a true crime, like actual true crime, into the novel and then takes his main character, Charlie, and is like, and what if this happened to Char Like what if Charlie was involved somehow? Uh, I'm not giving anything away. Charlie's not the killer in this scenario, yeah. but he's very much like a part of it, and I won't give that part away. But yeah, I mean, he uses so he has an entire series that he calls the narratives of empire series. I read every single one of them, mm-hmm. um, and what and the reason I'm saying that this book isn't just about Burr. This book is about a very specific frame of time from the Revolutionary War till the end of Andrew Jackson's presidency. Is because the next book takes pl- it takes place entirely during the Civil War which is called Lincoln right so that's you know and that's just four years but then the book after that is called 1876 and that is literally about the election of 1876 to you know really a, a, a little bit after and then the book after that is called Empire and it's about the time period of uh, of William McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt and uh, what's his name uh Hurst, uh, who William Randolph Hearst, and then the book after that is called Hollywood, and it's about Prohibition, and uh, you know, and what's his name, uh, Warren G Harding, and then the book after that's called the Golden Age, and it ends with World War Two. But the thing about this, and I don't want to give anything away, but I might later if, I, if I'm if i really into it, is that all these books have one particular through line. And I'm not going to give it away, but they are technically sequels to each other more than they are just sequels of history. So he he's writing all these books where he has his main characters who are usually fictional just constantly running against real events in history as well as real people. And there's a reason he does this, which is... You know, Gorvadal is, I don't know, what is the word for someone uh, who basically, like, likes to inflame the public? Like, what would you call someone like that? A polemicist?
1: Uh, like a pot stirrer? Uh, well, like you said, like, when you suggested this book, you were, like, gleeful in saying that Yeah. Gore Vidal is just a sassy bitch. He's and, a
0: sassy motherfucker. He's a sassy bitch, man. And,
1: like, he, the way that, and, it, okay, so... Once again, in the structure of the book, you get Burr's memoirs. So in Burr's memoirs, you get what you're talking about, where he basically points out the faults and characters of the Founding Fathers. He thinks Washington is a terrible general. Uh, Later on, he points out that Jefferson is a snake. And it's such a different way of looking at these people that, you know, there's monuments built to them. And what the doll does is through the voice of burr he kind of makes them more human he gives them very realistic flaws he demythologizes them i think he keeps the mythology there because even though he 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 rags on washington he does compliment him as being like the first great american politician
0: yeah, they're still great men. They're still incredibly achieved men, but he's taking them down the morality pegs.
1: Yeah, he like I said, he's basically doing a simple favor of making these men human. And in doing so, it's actually easier to sympathize and empathize with these men. And I think it's it's quite brilliant the way that he does it. Well, I have a question for you, okay? So, yeah.
0: Aaron Burr, just to just to sort of preface this question, you know, basically uh, he feuded with like everybody. He feuded with John Adams, he, and it's weird because he wasn't he wasn't actually a confrontational person. He was actually smooth as butter, really. Um, but he he constantly found himself running up against these guys. And in fact, if you ever get into Aaron Burr as a person, there's all sorts of great like um, not only literature but lectures online about Aaron Burr. Mm-hmm. And one, there was this one guy. It's one of my favorite. It's like a 45-minute lecture. It's called The Real Treason of Aaron Burr. And what this one guy proposes is that the reason all these different founding fathers from Washington to Jefferson to Hamilton to Adams, the reason that they all tried to basically stop Burr's political career— is because they hated that Burr openly exposed what they were all doing, which was running for office, right? So it was basically this thing where back then – you know you, they were all Cincinnati's none of them ran for public office public office was thrust upon them and oh, yeah. they simply they simply like, had okay. to do it because the public needed them they, they, they couldn't yeah. have cared less As were Burr like openly campaigned for it and the issue is that Burr was really exposing what they were all actually doing but he was doing it without shame and as a result they had to get on their high horses and be like this Burr character he's you know he's shameful he, he seeks power for powers own sake when in fact that's what they were all doing but yeah. they had to kill burr's career so it wouldn't expose what they were doing and the funny thing is that at the end of the day now it's it's nothing but aaron burrs right like open office seekers
1: yeah and burr operated on that code of honor where yeah he, his he word was bond. Right. so
0: gor vidal makes the makes the entire premise that burr is actually the honorable one and none of them are but continue
1: yeah, uh Burr operated on this code of honor and you know that's what ultimately led them to the famous duel but in pursuing an office he never played dirty. Uh he wouldn't bribe people for votes. He would sincerely approach like his constituents that could vote which is uh at that time like such a minority. It's so funny like when you're reading it and it's like uh the New York votes only like eighteen percent of the population could actually vote because Well I think what, it was
0: way the, less than that. Yeah, you had to be <laughs> what if like eighteen.
1: Yeah, you had to be a white male landowner <laughs> in order to vote. So you would have to talk to these like factions of families. And there I think there were like three big families in New York and you had to sway each one without angering the other ones because you were trying to like get on on their good side. So Burr was Pretty good at navigating those turbulent waters, whereas uh, the Virginians, uh, which was like Washington, Jefferson, um, what were the ones that came out? Monroe them? and Madison. Monroe and Madison. Madison,
0: or Madison and Monroe, technically.
1: Yeah, yeah, they were the they were the kind of the bad guys where they were like, oh, we're the land owning gentry. Like you have to. Yeah, vote he calls for, uh, he calls them the Virginia Ginta. The Virginia Ginta. The, the Virginia Ginta. Ginta. I loved it every time he was like, Oh, that damn Virginia junta got me again. But um So so here's my question though.
0: All right. Yeah. So I, I, I wanted to preface that, you know, it shows all the people that Burr runs up against. But like, you know, you say that Gorvadal wants to humanize these people. I think that's being rather generous. I think if you asked Gorvadal himself, he'd be like, No, like I wanted to tear these people down, right?
1: I don't believe so my- that. I, I I really do think that he doesn't have any malice towards these characters I think he loves everything about
0: I wouldn't call it malice but he's mischievous do you know what I'm saying Gorvadal likes to present information that he knows will piss people off he gets a kick out of it
1: I mean reading the book have you watched him on tv I mean I like this is my first Gorvadal experience but reading the book I never got angry you know about him like Saying George Washington had a fat ass. And, yeah, but you're not, you're, you're not
0: like you're you're not that political in the sense like you're not driving down to, you know, the Washington Monument in a fucking George Washington costume protesting healthcare. <laughs> you know what I well, mean? Like that's I, that's not you. There are people this, out there. I mean, even even the Thomas Jefferson Sally Hemings relationship met tons of resistance for decades in the historical community by people yeah. who didn't want to believe it until it was believed as fact.
1: Yeah, and this one is, like, very open with Jefferson and his relationship with slaves. But it's also, like I said, it's, like, he can, like, he portrays Jefferson as uh, believing that all of his illegitimate children were his family. Like, the slaves were kind of comfortable, even though they were put to work and, you know, doing slave stuff. it, it, It portrays Jefferson as being, you know, he loved his kids, like. Even well here's my question. He didn't. Here's my question,
0: because because 'cause we're getting there. Here's my question.
1: Which historical
0: figure comes off the worst in comparison to their public image in this book? Um, I think Washington. 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 Oh, interesting. I would've s I would have said Jefferson. But tell me why you say Washington.
1: I would say Washington because he's portrayed like he's the America's first general like he led the the army if you could call it that and burr constantly rags on him and says that washington never won any battles except for one or two and it was and this is all true by the way
0: it's true yeah he's
1: not yeah gorvidel's not making this shit up no uh, like and that's the funny thing because america during that revolutionary war they didn't have an army. You can call it a Continental Army, but they were paying their soldiers in fake money. They didn't have a regular uniform. They had no training. And yet they were trying to fight the British the way that the British fought, which was to their decline. And Burr wanted to do a guerrilla-style attack where it's like draw the British into the American wilderness and then cut off their supply lines and just keep messing with them with like night raids. But Washington constantly wanted to do the, the whole everybody's going to march in two lines slowly towards each other and take shots and just whoever makes the other men fall down the most. I call it musket bowling.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but eventually that's what George Washington ends up doing. That's actually what ends up happening. Yeah. What people forget is that the Revolutionary War – it's funny we call it the Revolutionary War because it's actually a part of something
1: else. Um, it's, it's actually part of – what is it? The Seven Years War? Oh, between London and France? Yeah, because France it basically has yeah, to tag in. Yeah.
0: So so the Revolutionary War is actually a smaller war in a greater war that England is fighting against France. And this is actually not in the book, actually. But it is just part well, of real history, well, which is that France was bankrupting England. Part of the reason England couldn't really fight the Revolutionary War to its full effect is A, they were going bankrupt from fighting France in the Seven Years' War, and B, many people in British Parliament were actually quite sympathetic towards the Americans. we got to remember that the King of England at this time was not an all-powerful king. In fact, and this is what's really interesting, when the American government was founded, Uh, the very first American government after they won the Revolutionary War. And I'm not talking about the Articles of Confederation. I'm talking once the country was formed. There was less democracy in America than there was in England at the time England was fighting against us in the Revolutionary War. This is one of the great myths of history, which is, you know, oh, we fought because we didn't want to be ruled by a king. But in fact, the people of England were freer in England at that time than the people in America were. And you have to include the slaves in America because they were people in America
1: yeah no, it was all about making money uh Parliament yeah. like every time like there was like a another loss for the British Army, and there were very few. It was still very costly because at that time they had to sail their entire army or whatever new troops they got to America, and then they had to sell supplies like it was very costly Parliament any time Washington managed to eke out a win. Like, be it like a, uh what's it called, a Pyrrhic victory where, you know, even though America technically lost some ground or whatever, but the, the loss of troops was like, say, like a two-to-one ratio. like It's kind of like World War I. Germany
0: lost World War I, and yet they were in France.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? It like, was, and that's part of the reason World War Two happened is because Germany was like, we didn't lose World War I. Yeah, it became quickly in parliament— an unpopular war once the French got involved because the the reason why Britain was kicking America's butt was because they had the naval supremacy. And France was able to come in and kind of alleviate that strain because they were interested in America's then, you know, booming cotton and tobacco trade. So it was all economics, you know, the, the right, English... So- yeah,
0: yeah. Let's let's get back to George Washington though for a second.
1: Um, yeah, let's talk about the old he, uh, he, wooden he, teeth
0: he, bastard. <laughs> what he what he does basically, what Gorvidal does here through Aaron Burr, is he he does something really tricky, which is that he makes George Washington into a dupe, and at the same time, an incredibly politically savvy operator. So basically, he's like he's like, look, the guy couldn't command an army for shit. Like he was kind of dumb, and in fact. I think it's pretty recognized now that intellectually George Washington wasn't anywhere near up to the standards of guys like Jefferson and Madison and Adams and Franklin. He just like, he just, he just wasn't, he was kind of dim compared to them. And, Keep in mind, nobody, everyone back then, including Washington, is a genius today, considering like, how much more educated they were back then than mm-hmm. rich people are today. Like, Rich people today are fucking stupid. But yeah. It's because like, some guy's dad made an app, and now his son's a billionaire, and his son still went to public school. And, look, I went to public school, but the point is they didn't have tutors from 7 in the morning till 7 at night like, slapping their wrists and making them learn Latin and Greek like, <laughs> yeah. history. Yeah, can, can
1: you repeat the Odyssey backwards? Well, yeah, hold exactly. Up. I have a, a great quote considering Washington. Uh, This this comes from, I think, Burr's memoirs. All right. So the quote begins, uh, Washington would become the clumsy courtier, diffident, halting, given to sudden blushes. And then at the right moment, a knife would flash in the dark and another rival would be stunned to discover that the dull, obsequious Virginia gentleman had effectively done for him
0: exactly so this is my point he this is the tricky balancing act he plays he portrays him as dim and kind of dull but at the same time he also says this guy was a genius political mm-hmm. operator who completely set himself up to be the preeminent man in the country right so you can't do that being completely dim so he's what he's doing is he's playing on the on the notion of washington that people teach which is that he's a brilliant general and a disinterested state, statesman, right? When it's quite the opposite. He was a, you know, a pretty ineffective general and a brilliant interested statesman. The guy, you know, completely understood the political side of everything and played it to perfection, not only to bolster himself, um, but to be, you know, to be fair, George Washington was a good president. He kept America out of um out of basically the French, the Napoleonic Wars, at a mm-hmm. time when when both when both political parties in America chose sides in that war, whether they be pro France or pro England, he just completely kept us kept us out of it, and he and he kept the country as a real country to the point where the presidency could move on past them. Forget the whole thing about him stepping down. The point isn't that he stepped down; is that when he stepped down, the country didn't
1: fall apart. Yeah, but I think that's. Him stepping down and setting that pre- uh, precedent as being a president, like, oh, two terms and you're out, I think that kind of was a very noble gesture towards what the founding fathers wanted to believe in, where they were yeah, going absolutely. to make a true republic. Where, I don't argue know.
0: that. I don't argue that. But the point is that he had to have been an effective president and mm-hmm. laid a foundation in order to step down and not have the country fall into chaos
1: yeah and and you know he groomed a lot of the people under him. Burr constantly criticizes Hamilton for being like a kiss ass, and Washington was known for having a bunch of people that were just sucking up to him. but he made sure that those people, his constituents, were going to be competent enough to keep the country together if they eventually ended up in a position of power so yeah so the, you're right, yeah, the reason I
0: think Jefferson. His his you know his reputation suffers the worst in this book, is because he portrays you know Washington just as a guy where it's not he's good or bad it's just that you've got him wrong. Mm-hmm. He prefers Jefferson as a real snake. He he's not portraying him as stupid. Quite the opposite. Uh, Burr has a sort of deep respect for Jefferson's like true evil, like his ability to manipulate situations. Mm-hmm. But Jefferson's a total snake in this book. I mean for he betrays people left and right. And the funny thing is that Burr makes this point that Jefferson can betray people and convince himself. Not only is he not betraying them, but that he himself is the one being portrayed.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, and he can, uh, convicts Jefferson of like double talk and hypocrisy all the time. I have a, another quote here, uh, that is from Burr. And it said, uh, certainly this ideal form of government is not practical for an empire of the sort Jefferson gave us when he illegally bought Louisiana. Like he was like, and he tried to take over Cuba and get the Florida keys. And for a guy that just wanted to build like a country based on like a farming, like a small farming Republic, Jefferson was very ambitious, very kind of greedy with his power. And, yeah, and I mean, he, he tried ran to on play small
0: government and he doubled the
1: country. You know what I mean? He ran yeah. on small
0: government and at the same time took unilateral executive action to purchase everything west of Louisiana, right? So, you know, he, he he's a hypocrite through and through. I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, even though it's Alexander Hamilton that Burr kills, mm-hmm. Jefferson is the villain. He's the antagonist of this book. I mean, yes, most towards, of Burr's problems yeah. come
1: from Jefferson. And you, you know what? It's like... I don't think Burr ever had real animosity towards Hamilton until the very, very end. Be- and we'll get to that. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll yeah, save that's, that. That's we're going to get ahead. to
0: Hamilton. Yeah, we're going to get to Hamilton and his, his part in this. Um, I just want to stick to Jefferson a little bit because one of the things you know that, that is really interesting about this is that Jefferson takes everything extremely personally, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of Burr. So Burr takes nothing personally to him. He is in a game called politics and win or lose. It's not personal, right? The, 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 the Victor wins because they deserve to win. And even if they won in an underhanded fashion, it's just because they were more clever than the next guy. And even if Burr yeah, or sneakier is the point. But even if Burr won't do that, he has a respect for it. But one of the really interesting things here is that Jefferson is the opposite Everything is personal to Jefferson. Everything is either, you know, it's with Jefferson's either loyalty or betrayal, which is funny because Jefferson is loyal to nobody except for himself. And the thing that makes Jefferson really turn on Burr, so for a little while Jefferson and Burr are aligned. And part of the reason they're aligned is that they're both anti-Alexander Hamilton because because really under Washington, Alexander Hamilton is the most important person in the country. He's yeah, the he's guy the secretary actually- of treasury, right? But he's more than that. He's implementing Washington's vision at all levels. You know what I mean? He's truly the prime minister. If ever there was like a prime minister in America, it was Alexander Hamilton. As for Washington, in his own way, was kind of like an elected king in the sense Mm. he was a figurehead. But it was Hamilton who was doing all the day-to-day work and Burr for his own, really just political reasons, they're not even ideological, because he's not an ideological person, even though he's a noble person in this book. But he's, he's, he's running in opposition, not formally running, but he just is in opposition to Hamilton, so he forms an alliance with, with, uh, with Jefferson. And then the election of Jefferson versus Adams happens, and Adams is knocked out really early. And yeah, because Adams got him,
1: and it was his first term, he did the, yeah. uh, the alien acts. And, and it wasn't and just that, he just wasn't, he just wasn't Washington. I don't think he, like, and he, he didn't want the job, I don't think. Do you think he he do you was think the only honest one that <laughs> right, didn't yeah, actually love, want the I job. I
0: love John Adams and I love his son even more. They're two of my favorite political figures ever, but they're not really important in this book. Mm-mm. However, I don't know if Jefferson, if he had replaced Washington, if he would have been much more successful than Adams. I think that Adams took the hit for just being the next guy
1: yeah being like the the weak sequel and then the third one is actually like hey here's a new thing
0: yeah he just he took the brunt of the nation's rage for the fact he wasn't washington he it went from like this tall heroic courageous looking guy to this short fat pugnacious arguer like it just Mm -hmm. never was going to work and then after the short fat pugnacious arguer you get another tall sort of solemn but a little bit different in his mannerisms from washington and jefferson but the but the point is this right so the the election comes down to Burr and Jefferson, and Burr has already told Jefferson he's like I have no problem being your vice president. And here's where it gets a little tricky, and why it's helpful to have Charlie Schuyler in this book. Burr's like I have no problem being uh, your your vice president to Jefferson, but he doesn't directly um, release his delegates from voting for him. So like basically in the in the House of Representatives, there are like thirty six like votes like, in a row, like, because they keep getting deadlocked, they keep getting in a tie. But the fact that Burr won't say to his delegates um, that they can vote for Jefferson only enrages Jefferson more and makes him trust Burr less. And this is kind of the point where we get to Charlie Schuyler and Charlie Schuyler does start to wonder about some of the things about Burr because you're never entirely sure if Burr himself is being honest about certain things and we'll get to that later. But the mm-hmm. point is the f- the fact that Burr doesn't bow out of the contest immediately makes him Jefferson's enemy while Burr is vice president in office. So while Burr eventually loses like on the 38th ballot, because he finally releases like his Delaware delegates to vote for Jefferson. But by that point, the damage is done. And when he steps into becoming vice president, Jefferson is already out to get him. He's already out to replace him because he just sees this guy as an enemy.
1: Well, um, there's like a brilliant part in the book. I'm thinking I'm going to stumble over this where it's like, uh, Burr and Jefferson are testing each other and they both kind of like lie about what they're actually doing. And yeah. then once the <laughs> lie – There's a lot of it, lying in this book. There's so much like cloak and dagger stuff in this. This where, is like the
0: best parts of Game of Thrones.
1: You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I mean the politics in this book are – here's like a, a seesaw. Some of the politics in this book are fascinating. They're like just web of treachery and lies and yeah. cloak and dagger. And then there's just some boring legal stuff that just counterbalances it. Which I think is like the only flaw. But when we get to, you know, that part, we'll talk about it more. But yeah, Jefferson is portrayed as I would think jealous of Burr. Yeah, he's petty. He's, like yeah. a, he's a petty-ass bitch. When they do that first election and Burr's like not campaigning and he ties with Jefferson for the amount of votes and he doesn't actually press that Delaware, that's the swing vote, that just fl- like throws Jefferson into a rage. And you find out later that Jefferson basically bought the Delaware vote and Burr had the chance, but because he works on this code of honor and he's like, well, you know... It, He's like, the okay. Fact, yeah. The
0: fact that Burr came as close as he did on the first round automatically made him Jefferson's enemy because mm-hmm. Burr's kind of like a sleeper. He's just, He's this formidable enemy that they all come up against. Hamilton comes up against him. Uh, uh, you know, Jefferson comes up against him. Even Washington, during the Revolutionary War, in his own way, comes up against him. One of the things we haven't talked about this book is that a huge portion of it is about the Revolutionary War, which, by the way, is my least favorite part of the book. Really, but in yeah, I just I just don't like troop movement stuff. Like I don't find war to be particularly interesting because so much of it is like purely tactical and like really like a strategy. It's like it's not human, it's
1: just like the movements of troops. But the yes, point is this. I was wait, before you get to your point, yeah, I was thinking yeah. uh, it's very curious that the name of our podcast is Full Dusty Jacket, referencing Full Metal mm-hmm. Jacket and yeah. that, that war. And all three of our books are about people trying to start a like a new civilization on a foreign land and starting a war. Like in Dune you have Oh shit, you're right. We yeah, never yeah, noticed Dune that. You absolutely is, right. Yeah, it's just it's like uh, uh we, I promise you we're going to not always talk about war. The next book we're going to go over, we talk about the end is not war related, but I thought that was very uh kind of fitting to for our first Yeah, you're our Dude, that's, that's a
0: really good observation. I never realized every single one of our books is essentially stranger in a strange land because these Americans, they're not really Americans. These are Europeans on the American continent mm-hmm. trying to make a new place. But my point is this, right? Part of the reason he runs afoul of Washington, Burr, is because Burr is better at M- at, at like military campaigning, like he's mm-hmm. a he's a better. I don't know what you put it. He's not a general technically. He's a colonel, but he's a better like tactician. He's better at war. He's more courageous. In fact, he's very. Fa- he becomes very famous for sort of I don't know, like leading this kind of like doomed charge in what is it Quebec? He's like in Canada, and he like takes one of the generals who he's working under, like his like he like drags his like sh- dead lifeless body from like where he shot yeah. behind enemy. What he we becomes call, like, yeah, away he be- from the front lines. He's, he's a hero. Become, yeah, he becomes, he becomes a war, a war hero, hero because
1: yeah. uh, he follows Benedict Arnold. Because Benedict Arnold believes that if they could take over, I do believe it is Quebec, but if they could take over the fort that was in the Quebec, then they would have enough arms and munitions to really give it to the English and also, you know, choke them out of the Canadian. Uh, I guess it would be a territory at that time. But it's it's kind of doomed. They get into a stalemate, and they lead this like ill fated charge. And Burr's commanding officer, you know, you know, uh, I think they get hit by a cannonball, mm-hmm. and Burr just gets kind of the wind knocked out of him. But when he recovers, he he drags his commanding officer kind of to safety, and then I believe he gets immortalized in a painting that becomes very popular. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And so he becomes a war hero, and. Through that he gets I think he gets promoted for it and that allows him to get closer to Washington and he always gives advice to Washington specifically about New York.
0: Washington, and it's not appreciated.
1: Yeah. He's like he's like we gotta we gotta retreat. Like just like he said, he wants to drag the war out into the uh, the wilderness and then do like a guerrilla warfare and Washington's like I said, he's trying to fight like a British uh, colonel. Where they're all just going to line up, but Britain has— yeah, they're all just going to line up and yeah, fucking just— get,
0: yeah. uh, It's going to be like one round, one volley, and then like eight minutes reloading, and then another volley. Just yeah, the and ridiculousness you're get your, of that yeah. kind of warfare. And you're going to get
1: was, bombarded by the shore by the and by uh, way, superior that, naval forces.
0: And this is kind of my point, right? Even the warfare of that time, there was a ridiculous pretentiousness to it that mm-hmm. was just like their politics like the idea of gentlemanly warfare and the thing about burr and this is the greater point i want to make is there's something about the way he carries himself the the honesty and like the the inherent nobility versus the pretension to it that really pisses everyone off around him cuz something people don't realize about aaron burr is that he comes from the most noble stock of any of the founding fathers his stock is technically more like so he like his ancestry is more prestigious than washington's it's more prestigious than jefferson's it's definitely more prestigious than adams and hamilton's like the burr clan his his grandfather was like the first like head of princeton or his father like basically everyone in his family is of of like is of the highest nobility that you can possibly have in a Mm -hmm. backwater colony like America. So he has this innate sense... Of nobility, that he's not trying to actually prove it all the time. He's just got it because he knows he's of the highest possible aristocratic stock. But there's something about him that is constantly rubbing everybody the wrong way. And I have this theory, and I think Gore Vidal has it too. It's the idea of the only sane person in an insane asylum, where If you have an opinion and there are a hundred people around you telling you you're wrong, that doesn't mean you're wrong. And in fact, you very well may be right. And I think that's one of the things Vidal believes. And that's the position he puts Burr in this book in regards to the founding of America. He's saying saying the entire narrative around Burr is that he's this dark, conniving, roguish figure. And that everybody else is acting from a place of inherent nobility. And in his mind, it's actually flipped. It's the opposite. Aaron Burr is the noble person and everyone else is a conniving, uh, manipulative figure.
1: Well, yeah, that's a great point because Aaron Burr was the only person that truly gave a damn about democracy. He was a hero of the people. The book starts off with him and Charlie uh, Schuyler walking through New York, and it's it says something like, "All the common folk will like smile at him and wave, but anybody that was well off or well to do would avoid his gaze." He was yeah. he was the he was a true hero of the people, and oftentimes kind of his slander, like Hamilton and his enemies would call him Caesar, like a wannabe Caesar. But Burr is Caesar to a T. He's smaller in stature. He's Smart. good with the ladies, mm-hmm. but he's also a brilliant to-the-point speaker and a true champion of the people.
0: Whereas- he also tries to take power through democratization which is what Caesar did. So like the the common man loved Caesar and the, obviously as as I think we fe- we found out the uh, nobility of Rome hated him. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Burr did is he created Tammany Hall. And yeah. Tammany Hall can be looked at one of two ways. It can either be looked at as a powerful organization towards the democratization of the of the voting citizenry of New York or it can be looked at as a scam which by the way it did turn into as a scam organization. Using political graft for for um, for you know uh, disinterested or I don't know what the word would be but for 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 hucksters like Burr to take power right so it's very mm-hmm. much a perception problem where the guys like Jefferson and Washington and Hamilton and Adams they see Burr. You know, whipping up the mob, so to speak, getting the the right. you know the kind of person they have a uh, disdain for, uh, him using the common person to gain power, or the common person sees it as Burr as their champion amongst an elite aristocracy. By the way, of which Burr is the most noble part of, literally, in his birth.
1: Yeah, it, it was two ways of doing things back then, and Burr was trying to be a champion of the people, whereas the Virginia junta. They were operating in the shadows. They were giving favors, uh, like appointments to the cabinet. They were giving jobs out. They were doing everything on the on the down low. Whereas Burr was very out and open. <laughs> he was just like, he's like, yeah, I'm just gonna go around and court these families. And if you can be more popular than I am, then you know, good for you. That right. was and, be- Burr's- and
0: before before we get to Hamilton, though, here's mm-hmm. the thing we have to talk about because we're talking about Burr being this noble champion of the people. But that's not entirely the case, and here's the thing I wanted to say: if you read Burr's memoirs, right, then that's mm-hmm. entirely the case. But when you look at Burr through Charlie Schuyler and everything Burr's doing, Burr's married some like rich former like prostitute who's now a millionaire, and like sucked up all her money and like land schemes that all go awry. He's actually an incredibly um, what's the word I want to use? It, it's it's sort of like a mischievous figure. Like what do you call like a rogue? There's a great. There's a great word for a person like this who's who's roguish, who's always coming up with schemes. You know what I mean? Um I don't know like I'll think of the word later, but you know, but but Burr's kind of this guy where there is a part of him that's a that's a complete um cavalier, so to speak. You know what I mean? Like
1: he, he does, does get thing. involved
0: in but he also gets involved in schemes. He really did try to take over Mexico yeah. and install himself as possibly the emperor down yeah. there. He gets involved in all these crazy schemes. Well, He's I think- not entirely uh disinterested in himself. Like he is God, I wish I could remember the word for somebody like Burr. There's there's a perfect word for a guy like this who's constantly getting caught up in schemes.
1: Uh, I don't know. I I think the only reason that Burr was like, he wanted to become emperor is just to spite Jefferson, kind of in the end. But what you were saying about how he's getting caught up in schemes, Burr operates on this weird level where money meant nothing to him. He was constantly, Mm -hmm. and this was, I thought, the most interesting thing, that Burr was like, bankrupt most of the time and so were all the other founding fathers everybody that was president kind of died uh what is it dissolvent where they didn't Mm -hmm. have money to pay their debts and i thought that was hilarious because once again these were proud landowners like the gentry and everything but they didn't have a penny to spend jefferson was furiously trying to make a nail factory with his slaves just to earn enough money to keep going and Burr was uh, he was like a uh, R.I.P. Bernie Madoff he was like scheming on people all the time and it was like a French woman he took all her money he sold all of her carriages in order to buy land in Texas because he got bad information it was like he was a rube financially but Very smart in other things. Like, it's kind of odd the way. One thing all these
0: guides did was live beyond their means. They were so.
1: Under pressure
0: to live like English gentry, but none of them had the money that the royal that the aristocracy of England had. These guys did not come from generations of wealth. these were the the you know the the ancestors, the descendants or whatever of the American settlers. The people who settled in America were not like the wealthiest people of England they really weren't like even though the like, people in America became very wealthy. These people themselves were not as wealthy as they would have liked to have been. In fact, I'm sure that the English gentry would have considered people like Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr and George Washington as pretty mediocre in regards to wealth. You know, I live like about seven miles down the road from Mount Vernon, which is George Washington's house. I've been there a number of times, and it's really not that impressive. Like, it's cool to go inside, but it ain't no Downton Abbey. You know yeah, what I mean? These, yeah. these guys were not like. They were not the, the the kings and queens of america they were, they were pretty like backwater,
1: yeah, and I think a fascinating part of the novel for me was is that the reason that the aristocracy got by was because they were American aristocracy, they mm-hmm. had credit, they could uh, borrow money, whereas a huge problem that's addressed in the book is that debtors. Uh, Went to jail. (laughs) Yeah, like all the, even (laughs) though, even though all the like presidents were in debt, they never had to go to jail. But if you were poor and you owed somebody money, you were going to jail. (laughs) And and that plus the way the bank system worked is just kind of this. uh, What do you call it? A powder keg waiting to go off. What do you think? What do you think about
0: that? They were constantly avoiding their, their debt collectors. I mean, literally Burrs like running out of his house, like knowing that the debt collector is going to come. He's like, "Oh, let's go get a drink, but he's going to get a drink with Charlie because he knows the debt collectors are coming around this time. All right, so let's move on to sort of the final and most key relationship in this book before we wrap it up. Um, All right. And that's with Alexan- and that's with Alexander Hamilton. Um, I have my own personal theories. That, by the way, are somewhat similar to the theories uh, in Burr about the relationship between Alexander Hamilton and Burr, which is that these are the two smartest guys in the room. Both of them, they are flip sides of the same coin, Um, and oftentimes that leads to rivalry rather than partnership. There's kind of there's a begrudging there's a respect that they have for each other because they recognize that each person is formidable. But they both can't succeed at the same time for some reason. One success always has to come at the expense of someone else's. And, you know, Hamilton is kind of, he's the more aggressive party. He is the person who is, in, who is actually more flamboyantly uh, manipulating things than Burr. Burr per, uh, prefers to sort of go, fly under the radar as he does his machinations. As where Hamilton is much more straightforward and aggressive, and you know likes to likes to manipulate things behind the scenes. And before I give away what caused the duel in this novel, I have a theory about Burn Hamilton. If you'll allow me a minute to expound on it, um, and it's something that the musical Hamilton, which let me guess you have not seen.
1: Well, I think uh, Burr says it best about these two. Where I quote. Ultimately, I think he must be judged Hamilton as an excellent politician who had no gift for warfare. History as usual has got it all backward. So, he does respect Hamilton, but he believes that uh, he was just in the long uh in the wrong line and they were kind of polar opposites.
0: Right. So here's the question, right? Alexander Hamilton kind of cost Burr the presidential election against Jefferson. So on one of those many, many rounds of balloting in the House of Representatives, Alexander Hamilton, who by this point is in the political wilderness, he's living in upstate New York, which might as well be China, um, in regards to like the center of American politics. He comes out and he says to all the Federalists who are at that time voting for Burr, he says, you know, I disagree with everything that Thomas Jefferson says. He's been my political opponent for years, but Burr is unscrupulous. He has no he has no ideology whatsoever. His only interest is power, and therefore, you should vote for Jefferson because Jefferson at least has
1: ideals. I've well, he he doesn't he doesn't dirtier than that. Well, my point is this:
0: I've never believed this. I've actually Mm -hmm. never believed that that was the true reasoning for Alexander Hamilton siding with his own worst political enemy. And here's my reasoning, all right? Imagine, Sean, that you are like my brother. Like, we're close friends. We're very similar. We're contemporaries, right? Mm-hmm. And we both... Imagine I have, a, I have an opponent, though, like an enemy. Someone like I... like my Sort of like someone I really severely hate and I want to see get taken down some other guy, right? We'll call it Thomas Jefferson. And I've been fighting against this guy for years. And then eventually Thomas Jefferson beats me, right? And I hate this guy. I just want to take him down. He beats me. And then imagine I'm watching you and you're like my contemporary. We're very similar in talent and skill. And I see that you're about to take Jefferson down, not me. I think in some ways, I'd rather Jefferson win overall than watch you succeed because if you succeed, that makes me look even worse. It means someone else could bring this person down and I couldn't. But if Jefferson wins overall, then Jefferson's just so formidable that nobody could bring him down. And I think this is what happened with Hamilton and Burr. I think Hamilton couldn't stand the thought of anybody defeating Jefferson except Hamilton. And when Hamilton realized it couldn't be him, then it was going to be nobody.
1: Well, I think to back up that theory, you have to look into where uh, Hamilton was from because he was born illegitimate and poor. Mm-hmm. and was raised in the Caribbean. by yeah and he was raised by i think it was like a trader uh so he learned like math and numbers and he was very meticulous with the way he did things so he became a man not of action but of deep consideration of what he was going to do in order to defeat his enemies and i can see that if he had planned for so long to bring down Jefferson and couldn't do it, but then saw Burr step in and kind of casually be, come right. out the victor, then, yeah. yeah, I can see somebody like that become very, very petty because their machinations didn't play out. Yeah,
0: you don't want to see your contemporary succeed at the thing you couldn't succeed at, even if that success is, the, is even if that goal is to defeat someone else. Well, I, like, think- I don't...
1: I don't I think want to see that,
0: you accomplish a thing I can't accomplish, and that accomplishment is
1: defeating Jefferson. I think if that would be the case, that paints Hamilton as the coldest of all the political figures that were brought up in this novel. If that theory is true, that he just, out of pride, couldn't accept that his close friend was going to best him and therefore plotted his downfall, that makes Hamilton come out. Far worse than anybody else in this novel.
0: Well, are Hamilton's motives ever truly explained? Because basically, after Burr uh, is kicked out of the vice presidency, he tries to run a few more times for different offices. Most importantly, uh, the governor of New York. And Hamilton, every single time, goes after him, tries to bring him down. Is this motivation ever actually explained?
1: I believe, if Burr's to be believed, it's because. Hamilton was resentful for anybody that was in the aristocracy and because – But he wanted to be in the aristocracy. Hamilton is more more of a
0: royalist, so to speak, than anyone.
1: Yeah. He he put on the most airs as trying to be uh, part of the aristocracy by supporting the central bank, uh, sucking up to Washington. But nobody – everybody knew his past. Imagine that being – an outcast even though you're smarter than everybody else but never being accepted in the group that you feel you aspired to be that Mm -hmm. could breed a very potent version of bitterness and yeah because burr is
0: aware burr is well aware of alexander hamilton's falseness in terms of being one of the aristocracy simply because of the fact burr is the aristocracy Mm -hmm. like that's the whole idea in some ways like Hamilton cannot pretend to be this thing as long as Burr's in the room. Everyone else is pretending. None of these guys are in the American aristocracy, like the true aristocracy, except for Burr. Washington will eventually become the American aristocracy. So mm-hmm. will Jefferson, all in hindsight. But but at the time, and especially before the war, Burr is the only guy in that aristocracy. He's, his family is of the most... I hate saying stock because it compares people to cattle, but I don't know, like, you know, breeding, whatever it is, right? I'm not Lineage. I think lineage lineage. is a good word. Yeah, his is of the most noble lineage. Um, Okay, so here's what I want to do now, Mm -hmm. dear listener. If you don't want a spoiler, and this isn't even the worst spoiler, but if you don't want a spoiler, stop now, read Hamilton. We're at about 55 minutes in. Come mm-hmm. back and listen to the rest because now we're going to get into some of the cool, one of the two coolest parts of this book, in my opinion. So, from here on out, we're in spoiler territory. You good with that,
1: Sean? No spoilies. No, we're, we got to do, <laughs> do it. We got to do it. We got to talk about it. We well, I'm saying it's like no spoilies zone. You got to stop now. You got to oh, yeah, so come stop, back later. Stop,
0: stop now. Come back later. All right. Here's what I want to say. Um, here's what happens. Here, so as you said, Burr. Nothing's personal with this guy. You defeat Burr, he doesn't take it personally. It's all a game to him. It's all, they're all gentlemen playing at politics, and none of it's a big deal. And yet something happens uh, between Hamilton and Burr that causes Burr to fucking kill this guy. And let's be clear. In this duel, what you find out is that Burr never had any other intention but then to kill Hamilton dead. Right. All mm. this bullshit that especially the fucking stupid play tried to introduce, which is like, oh Burr did it Burr didn't mean to shoot him and Hamilton aimed at the sky and blah blah none of that's in this book. Um, in this book, Burr was like, Oh, I knew when we went there I was gonna shoot him dead. And the reason is this at a dinner party in I think like what is one of Burr's like last like final runs at some sort of public office, Hamilton is once again disparaging Burr. And at this point, Burr has basically summed up Hamilton As being just totally reckless in his words This is a guy who's like completely Just like he's, he's off the hinges Right he's like he's complete, snapped. He snapped like he is just Like Hamilton is just now like possessed By some sort of like like Maniacal like urge to take Burr down And at this dinner party Hamilton accuses Burr Of incest with his own Daughter and yes. this is why Burr's like oh I got to kill this guy. Like he's gone too far. And that I totally understand. And I have done so much research trying to find out why Gore Vidal uh, came up with this theory. And I can't find it anywhere. Even Gore Vidal has never explained why he felt that this was the thing. Because... The historical record shows that what Hamilton said about Burr was he's talking shit on Burr, and then he says, and I could tell you even something more despicable about Burr, like about Mr. Burr's character. And like the word despicable is like debated in a million different ways. But the book, there's no guessing about it. In the book, he accuses Burr of incest with his own daughter. And mm. here's the thing I love about the book, right? If you just take it at that face value from Burr's memoirs, where you're like, well, of course it's not true. But the cool thing that the present tense does is the Charlie Schuyler character wonders if it actually is true.
1: Yeah, because it's portrayed, uh, the daughter's name is Theodosia, mm-hmm. and Charlie gets to read some of Theodosia's letters to Burr, and while Burr is in France in exile. He's very forward in his letters. He describes like his sex life to his daughter in mm-hmm. you know very specific terms. And even in company, Theodosia and Burr have this kind of flirtatious attitude. So anybody but also that, Burr treats her with
0: respect. That's another yeah. thing that's weird. He he educates her as a man.
1: And he he basically a theme about Burr is that he likes older Intelligent women—that's mm-hmm. his like flavor—and he. Burrs an early turn, feminist, I, I suppose so. it never really says that no. He, he is he—he he supports the woman's right to vote. I think I, I missed that part.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, Burrs one of the earliest feminists in American public history. Yeah, he he loved the
1: women. That's another comparison yeah. for but him. He, but he did have
0: respect it. for them, and he and he appreciated their company as well.
1: Yeah, it's noted in the book that. Burr, while Burr loved women, he was even more fond of children and not in that sexual way, no, no, yeah, never depicted yeah, as yeah. a, a sexual player, but he just got along with children so well. And I think at one point Charlie asked, because Charlie in his story, he's addicted to going to a brothel mm-hmm. and he's just terrible with women. And he asked Burr, what's his secret to success with women? And Burr responds, I just treat him like men. Yeah. He just, he just, (laughs) he's, Bird just is flat out the most honest and straightforward guy you would ever want to meet. And yet, if his enemies, like Hamilton, put across that theory that he was sleeping with Theodosia, even though how false it would be, it, you know, it could be believable. But here's the thing
0: this is a theory put across by Gore. mm -hmm. And the thing about it is that, Gore's not only saying, here's what I think happened. If he is to be, if we are assuming that Charlie Schuyler is Gore, then Gore himself is wondering if the own theory he put across is actually true. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's no way to know. I think it's, isn't it that you're right that there's that party where Hamilton, you know, disparages Burr on the down low in front of everybody else. But I think there's a note or like a letter that mm-hmm. actually has that accusation in it. And once Burr intercepts it, that's when he goes and challenges Hamilton. So there, I don't think there's any record of that letter. We just know that there was animosity between these two men. And I believe Gore Vidal with his theory kind of just took it and ran with it. Because I want to know why Gore Vidal came up with this. I want to know. Like, I'll
0: never I don't think I'll ever find out because I think I've exhausted the research on it. Mm. But I really want to know why Gorvadal came up with this theory, why he thinks that not only is this what Hamilton said about Burr, but that it might potentially be
1: true. Well, it, it's a historical loose end. I mean, the daughter died yeah. on a boat along yeah. with, with all his papers of his papers, <laughs> which yeah. might've had incriminating evidence. So I think Gore Vidal is just like, if I'm going to write this book and it's going to, the climax is going to be Burr shooting Hamilton and there's no primary source. I got to come up with something a little bit spicy, <laughs> you know, yeah. I got to okay. he once again, he's stirring the pot. He, he's showing these people as men that were flawed and Was there incest? That's pretty spectacular and out of the way. But if Hamilton was supposed to be as underhanded as he was and at this point pushed to the limit of his anger and hatred, then yeah, if he, he could be that petty to put such an accusation against a political rival. So I think Gore Vidal just saw that loose end and just took it and tied it up in his own bow. And that's I'm the less, beauty. I'm yeah. less,
0: I'm less shocked that he came up with the accusation and more shocked that he used the Charlie Skyler character to wonder if it was true. That well, that's what I really want to know if Burr if not only does does Gore think that that's what the accusation was, but does Gore think it's potentially an accusation based in truth?
1: Well, he, he made it up. It, obviously, he had to believe in it. There's there's no good re- nobody will ever know. As hard as as I shut my eyes and wish I was in the room when Burr decided to do this, that'll never happen. So I think Vidal just chose the spiciest, most uh, titillating way to cause that duel. I mean, what else do you put on it? Like, I I don't know. Okay,
0: so, and by the way, we're not done with with doozies, all right? Because there's another one coming here, so you know the alexander aaron burr relationship is kind of a hot topic at the moment because of the musical hamilton and i feel like it's it's sort of been exhausted to death we know these guys were peers we know they were similar we know as the song says there wasn't enough room for both of them or maybe there was blah 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 blah. right mm-hmm. here's the second doozy that gorba Dahl puts in the book and it's fantastic um So I'll do this in reverse order. So if you recall earlier in this podcast, the reason Charlie Schuyler even knows Aaron Burr is because Aaron Burr used to frequent the tavern that Charlie Schuyler's dad and mom owned. Well, apparently the reason that Aaron Burr actually frequented this tavern, you find out later. So Burr dies, okay? He dies and Charlie Schuyler never knows the truth if, uh, if Martin Van Buren is Aaron Burr's son. And mm-hmm. then he finds out through Aaron Burr's lawyer that Burr has left some papers for Skyler. And Skyler goes and he reads these papers. And what he finds out is that Charlie Schuyler is actually Martin Van Buren's half-brother. And the reason he's Martin Van Buren's half-brother is because they're both Aaron Burr's kids. I mean it's fantastic. Yeah. So so Aaron Burr's going to the tavern because he used to he used to, you know, to pork uh Charlie's mom. And he's going to the tavern to check up on Charlie's mom and possibly Charlie as well.
1: Yeah, you know what? Uh, this was the this was the I part loved of, it. I, I feel like it went over as well as a lead balloon. Oh, come yeah, on. I, I thought this was the weakest part. I, I honestly I enjoyed the first seventy five percent of this novel, but when it got into Burr's, uh plans for taking over Mexico and that kind of political nonsense, and then the ending where Schuler or Skyler actually finds out that he's Van Buren's half brother while he's on a government job in France.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The the former uh, was it the portmaster of New York
0: mm-hmm.
1: was accused of embezzling thousands yeah. of dollars, and now he's in exile. And so he visits Skyler while he's, I think he's an ambassador to France. He's like an attaché or something, yeah. Yeah, like a high post, like a nice, He, nice he gets a
0: government job he's always wanted, which will allow him to live in Europe, which is what he's always wanted and be financially secure.
1: Yeah, and and Skyler was, or, or not Skyler, but the the portmaster mm-hmm. was an old colleague of Burr, and he knew more about Burr. And as he's leaving, he's like, "Oh well, you know, of course, why you got the job because oh, Marty right, Van right, Bees, right. your your brother, your older brother, or your younger brother, and was no, older brother, older brother, older brother. And the fact of the matter is, the entire novel is about how promiscuous Burr was. Even one of the people that Charlie goes to interview to get more information is." The illegitimate son that Burr had with a French woman. And he talks to him, and it's just like when it's. I knew right then, I was like, oh, okay. Charlie's obviously Burr's son. Oh, you I knew, knew. I knew I halfway know. through the novel. Oh, and I had no idea. So at the end, where it's supposed to be this big, impactful thing, I, it, it came out more like a. So, like said, so for
0: me, it was huge. And here's why. Here's something you, te- you need to know that might change your opinion. Okay. Mm hmm. And this was, this goes back to the American the, the the what what did I call it the novels of empire series that uh, remember how I said there was a through line between all of Gord Vidal's books in the in the novels of empire series yeah and go here's on. the through line every main character is a fictional descendant of Aaron Burr.
1: It's all one
0: family. That's why I love it so much, with the exception of Lincoln. And the funny thing is he didn't write. He actually wrote Lincoln after he wrote 1876. 1876 is actually a direct sequel to Burr. Charlie Schuyler comes back to America as an old man. And then after he wrote 1876, he wrote Lincoln and he inserted it in there. But every single book is a descendant of Charlie Schuyler and therefore a descendant of Aaron Burr. So that's a through line where basically the books um, Empire through... So Empire, Hollywood, and Golden Age all are about um, Charlie Schuyler's granddaughter named Caroline who is herself the uh, the great-granddaughter of Aaron Burr. And that's the really cool thing about these books is that they all take place in this fictional lineage that Aaron Burr produced. It's super cool They're an awesome series of books, um, and I highly recommend them. But that's why I like that reveal so much, is because of how much it payoffs later.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, it makes sense, because Skylar was already working for Burr, and that's why I think Burr was able to open up and trust Charlie with the memoirs, Mm -hmm. and... I don't know if the the two men at the newspaper. I think it was like, what Leggett and Bryant mm-hmm. put him up to it because they also suspected that Charlie was. Burst. I don't
0: know. I, I so. I've never I never got that vibe. In my opinion, I don't. I think they just they saw an opening, which was that one of the guys they knew new burr okay i think like i think
1: Leggett was a far too crafty a character for that not to pop up on his radar but yeah great. Right, so
0: let, let's do some wrap-ups let's do some final thoughts and then we'll do our final segment so let's just do final thoughts on the actual book right now here's mm-hmm. my final thought you can look at the direct plot of the book which i think would actually be a mistake even though it's a great plot but in my opinion this is one of these great examples of a book where basically the whole point is to invent a character and then to just have him run up against other true people. So it's almost like a collage. It's a collection of moments. This book is not one central conflict that resolves itself over time. It doesn't have a central plot. This is a book that moves through American history through a very specific set number of years, and you're constantly running into minor historical characters as well as major ones. There's not a scene in this book where some famous person from American history doesn't pop up and kind of do their thing. It's super fun that way. Um, and I think that's the best way to enjoy the book, where the more you know about American history, the more you will enjoy the book, because he's constantly just throwing all this 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 history that that you know about into the book in the most minor ways. I mean, I think actually I'm thinking 1876 now. I was going to say Mark Twain, but people are just constantly showing up this in this book in little tidbits, and it's great. So, in my opinion, this is a great book not only to learn about American history in a way that is fact based, but also has a great perspective that you won't really get from the sort of reverential second grade. Uh, education that we get about these guys. But also, it's just, it's just fucking fun as hell, man. That, that's my opinion. What do you think? What are your final thoughts on this book?
1: My final thoughts on this book are, as far as it being a historical fiction work, I think it's very novel because some of my uh, more favorite historical novels, such as I, Claudius and uh, Master and Commander, mm-hmm. they mostly zoom in on one aspect. Of, right. of the history. Whereas yeah. Burr is very expansive. It tells the story of Burr and his war and all this political scheming, but it also paints a very vivid picture of what it was like living in the early 1900s New York. You know, mm-hmm. Charlie has to go through riots where it's like Irish people trying to fight anti-abolitionists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's meeting in these shady taverns full of smoke and and... You get that feeling that the setting is alive. It's very immersive as far as history. So if you don't want to read like a straight up dry biography, this one's very fun. It's you can't take every word in it for being true facts, but goddamn, it is very interesting. It does it hooks you and it doesn't let go until the very end.
0: By the way, Vidal makes a point at the end. He's like, This book is really well researched. He's not dicking around. Like he's no, trying he to, make, posts he tried to make a point. He's yeah, he's like, I didn't make up a lot of stuff in this book. He's like a lot of the feelings and even dialogue from this book, he's like, I took from letters like from these people. So mm. that part's super interesting. You could this book as far as historical fiction goes, and I read a ton of historical fiction, is by far one of the most credible. Right. This is one of the yeah. most researched works of historical fiction you are ever going to see. Okay, the only made now,
1: the only made up character is Charlie Scott. It's Charlie. That's right. That's it. Now for, yeah, and he's now supposed for the, to be the surrogate.
0: Right. Now for the last part. Because this is a literary podcast for gentlemen, right? And perhaps you haven't read this book yet or you're in the middle of reading it. You know, it's important uh when you're reading a fine work of literature to also be consuming a fine meal and to be imbibing a uh a classy drink. So now we're going on to our segment called a uh, Sommelier's Pick, which is basically what should you be eating and drinking as you read this book. Sean, this is your idea, so you go first.
1: Yes. Well, as the Sommelier, I feel this book's character is best summed up in a nice Madeira wine. It's Spanish <laughs> of origin. It's very spicy, and. You know, once you drink a glass or two, you're going to find yourself laughing at the sardonic wit that Gore infuses into the book and the characters. And, you know, when you get hungry, then you have a nice roast pheasant. You do Mm. have to go out in the wild and hunt it yourself. You have to shoot it with a buckshot and then, Mm -hmm. you know, remove as many of the pellets as you can. But, you know, the gamey flavor is going to bring you back to that kind of frontiersmanship that is the wilderness that was north america at the time those are my sommelier picks sam do you have anything in mind yeah
0: here are my sommeliers picks okay for starters we'll go with the meal i think you gotta go with rabbit um sauteed in a garlic butter sauce right so nothing too fancy right because you're living out in the frontiers There isn't, this isn't, you know, there's no buffalo roaming around. We're certainly not slaughtering cows by this time. So I think a good fat hair that you shot through the neck so that you didn't, you know, combust any of the internal organs. And then you got to skin it. You got to chop it up. You got to remove all those little rabbit bones. You got to put it in what is essentially a skillet. And you just got to get butter and garlic, right? And, you, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of like a rabbit stew. As for drink, you know... I wanted to, I wanted to go with wine uh, some sort of wine I'm not I'm not exactly a wine expert uh, but I, I do think wine at the time probably would have been what these guys drink some sort of like deep red wine but because you went with that I'm gonna go with what they probably would have drank in the bars of New York City so a port of some kind. yeah I think that's probably what they would have drank like a real like a real chest warming port so that's my idea you, you go to the bar and you order a rabbit uh, a, a, a stewed rabbit and a port that's my idea for that's my Somalia's pick
1: okay and i think uh the last thing we want to do is just a quick if hollywood was making a blockbuster version of an adaptation of this book let's cast the three main characters charlie hamilton and burr sam what are your picks for those three a- actors
0: Okay, I'm gonna do four actors. In fact, I want to cast Jefferson because okay. I, oh, oh, no, I think Jefferson's actually. I think Jefferson's more important in this book than Ham, than Hamilton is, quite frankly. Okay, because um, I think he's the antagonist. Okay, so young, So Charlie Schuyler, I might throw you for a loop. But God, I don't know why this guy has come into mind, but I'm kind of thinking fucking Chris Pratt. I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but but here's the thing: Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt has to get fat again. He has to be fat, Chris yeah. Pratt. He can't be chiseled, Chris Pratt. He's got to put on the weight. All right, so, okay. so he's, it's got to be like Andy, right? Andy from The Office. So I'm going to slightly oh, change hapless. his character. Hapless, because Charlie's hapless. He's a very hapless character. So okay. I'm going with fat Chris Pratt uh, from The Office. <laughs> Young Burr, man, that's tough. You know what? I know who I'm going to pick, but the guys, but this guy, instead of gaining weight, he's got to lose weight, okay? I'm going with Tom Hardy. I think Tom Hardy could nail this role as the young Burr. I think he could also probably wear the makeup and be the old Burr as well. But I think if anybody can play that kind of complex, dark figure, I think it's Tom Hardy. Um, but he's got to go skinny. He can't. Tom, be Hardy, mass- Tom Hardy's Bane, right? Yeah, he's Bane. He's, okay. he's a massive figure. But if you look at early Tom Hardy work, he was skinny. So mm-hmm. I'm going with Tom Hardy for Burr. Okay. Um, Alexander Hamilton, boy. All right, I'm going to get back to him because the Jefferson one is easy. There's this actor, his name's Stephen Delane, and he played Jefferson in the John Adams series, and he's brilliant. And I see no reason to not use a, him again. He's he's freaking great in that show. Uh, so I'm going with Stephen Delane. And by the way, in case you don't know who Stephen Delane is, he played uh, Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones. So that guy.
1: Oh, yeah, that's a good actor.
0: And fucking hell, man, Hamilton. Yeah. Oh, boy, that's rough. I got I'm trying to think of a you know, it's it's got to be like okay, I got it. I know who Hamilton can be. All right, check it out one of two options. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to go with my first pick. I think Joaquin Phoenix can do it. Really? Yeah, I
1: think Joaquin no, I Phoenix think he could can
0: play the unrestrained Hamilton.
1: That kind of I, I can see that kind of rambling, but yet charming kind of thing. Yeah, I was, just I like, was sort. Of, I was sort
0: of thinking Adrian Brody, but I've instead decided for, for ooh, Brody. Phoenix. And not only that, Brody's Brody can play Burr. Brody can also play Burr. He's too I tall. Though. Um, he's too tall. He's too tall for yeah. Burr. You know what? In fact, apparently Tom Hardy's like five eight, so Tom Hardy could play Burr. So yeah, I'm going with Joaquin Phoenix as Hamilton. And I'm going as a skinny Tom Hardy for Burr. I'm going for Steven Delane as Jefferson, and I'm going for fat uh, Chris Pratt as Charlie Schuyler.
1: Okay, Those, I think the, I think the Chris Pratt one throws me most for a loop. It's for like
0: com- it's really for comedy. i just want to add some comedy into this. I just want him to be Andy.
1: Okay. Um. Well. All right. Let's go into my picks. Uh, yep. I believe, and this one to me, is a bit on the nose. But for Charlie, I think it's got to be Spider-Man, Tom Holland.
0: Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, Yeah, it's on the nose. But that's who they'd actually
1: hire. Yeah, and that's I'm I'm going big Hollywood, like, what would you expect Mm kind of thing. And in that vein, I think for Burr, could play both young and old. Tom Cruise. No, too old.
0: Too old. He couldn't but play. I, think you I could... thought about it. He's short, but yeah. he couldn't play young Burr. He's too dude, Tom Cruise is fucking busted now, dude. He is old. I don't think he could He could play old Burr, but he could he's too old to play Young Burr unless you're gonna do that awful CGI de aging.
1: Okay. Um yeah, that's a point. I just feel like Tom Cruise's energy is is in sync with Burr's, where he could be I think like, he's too, charming. I think he's but... too
0: manic. I think he's too manic to be Burr. Like he goes too right, big but,
1: too often, and Burr is small. He's inwards, right? But I think also Burr is prone to like he said, like he gets himself involved in things. He doesn't think before he acts. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think Tom Cruise would be a great old Burr. As for okay. young Burr, yeah, uh, yeah, you're right. I don't know if he's if this he's movie too was made. Yeah, if this movie was made like ten years ago, we could get a young and an old Wh- Burr. What
0: about think. Leonardo DiCaprio?
1: As Burr? Young, Burr. Like Young yeah, Burr, Young
0: Burr. He's still That'd an be... old ass fucker now, but he could probably do it.
1: You know what? I'm not the biggest DiCaprio fan. No, I don't even like Leonardo DiCaprio. I, so I, I, I just, would mix that. I'm, I don't I'm think just imagining him with fan. his hair slick. I'm just imagining him with his hair
0: slicked back, thinking like, yeah, <laughs> he could probably do it.
1: Um, moving on. My pick for Jefferson. Uh, this might be a weird one, so this might be my cur- curveball. But Michael Fassbender.
0: Oh yeah, that's a good one. Michael Fassbender could play Burr. <laughs> I mean, but sure. You True, yeah. <laughs> you could play Burr, but you want to go with Hamilton? Sure, why not? I mean, not no, I, him as I, uh, Jefferson. 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 Yeah, he could do it. Because he's yeah. got
1: that he's got that like uh fuck man, he can played be Steve Chom- Jobs. Yeah, but he could also be like menacing kind of in a yeah, way.
0: Yeah, I'm just saying if he could play Steve Jobs, he could certainly play Alexander. I mean, he could certainly play Thomas Jefferson. And who's your Hamilton pick?
1: And to wrap it all up, um I think uh, he charmed my paint. He like he charmed the heck out of me. And the kid detective, Adam Brody for Hamilton.
0: Ooh, that's a good one.
1: Yeah, that's because really he's good. got that kind of like yeah. smug. I've got something to prove. Resting face. That and uh, he could also
0: just be kind of bouncy. Like he could bounce off. Like the Hamilton in this book bounces off the walls a little bit, right? He's like pure yeah. energy. He's like a manic energy. And I mean that was that was Brody's shtick, dude. I mean that was his whole thing. Was like manic energy. Yeah, I think I think that's your best pick. All right, Sean, this was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I think uh, we portrayed the book well, and I hope it gets people interested in reading it because this is a fantastic novel, like yep. really, really good. I'm very glad you recommended it to me. Uh, and I really want to get into the rest of the books now that I know that there's, yeah. what, seven more of them. Read
0: them all in order, read Lincoln next. Um, all right guys, this has been the full Dusty Jacket uh, podcast, the Larry podcast for gentlemen. If you guys like the podcast, please rate and review on iTunes. It goes a long ways towards getting more listeners, uh, and that would mean a lot to us. Um, Sean, until next time, I'll talk to you later. All right, Sam. Goodbye, everybody. All right, see you.)